There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh, my David here with Ken Early, back from a busy weekend. Ken, you had the pleasure of attending both the Champions League final and Ireland versus England at the Aviva Stadium. A slight shift in quality on the pitch and intensity of it. Um, yes, yeah, so Owen, it was quite different. Two two different occasions. Um, although, you know, I have to say, the sheer spirit of sportsmanship that animated the Aviva Stadium yesterday was it not a soothing balm to the soul and the senses. I mean, certainly the senses uh, were, were balmed. It felt as though I'd been... Uh, uh, smothered in aloe vera <laughs> and then wrapped tightly in bandages. You know the way I, in, in Russia they have that, that habit of when a newborn baby is born, they sort of wrap them really tightly in those bandages so they kind of turn them into an almost little, like a baby stick. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Like it's, they're tightly bound, they can't move. Like oh, they almost resemble a giant, um, you know, like a grub that you might find in an anthill. Um, and they can kind of stack them there. And the idea behind this tight bandaging is to it, it it actually calms the baby down. Um, it sort of it sort of makes it I don't know fall asleep, um, and that's kind of that 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 was what how how much of a ban to the senses that game was. That's how I felt. It was very difficult to stay awake. It was but quite warm as well. You see, the sun mm. came out in the second half in particular. Really started beating down there. I did have heartburn. That was kind of that was kind of keeping me uh, awake uh, a lot of the time. I had, I had a bad case of heartburn. I'd uh, my diet uh, that morning hadn't been good. I grabbed a couple of, you know, kind of a, a, a bad cheese sandwich in the airport. In Berlin. In Berlin, yeah. I drank a couple of really awful cups of coffee. You don't do great sandwiches, do they, Ken? No, the they the Especially air, not well, at the airport. Well, to be honest, the airports, I've yet to eat a good sandwich in an airport. So by the time I was sitting there at the um, at the Aviva Stadium, my, my stomach was, was really uh, at me, Owen. Mm. It was grumbling, it was growling. It was like a molten ball of... of um, Slowly decaying flesh being consumed by acid, and that meant that meant that I didn't nod off during the Ireland England game, and so I was awake to see the sportsmanship of the England fans. And why is nobody congratulating the England fans? I remember two thousand and seven on Croke Park. I don't remember it. I wasn't there. I watched it on te- uh, television. But the Ireland fans uh, welcomed 
England, the old enemy, as as they, you could still find them being called in some newspaper reports, to Croke Park, where on we don't need to mention what happened there. We all know. We all know what happened at Croke Park. That's like we all saw Michael Collins. We're all aware that something along those lines happened. At <laughs> something <laughs> equally uh, bloody, but uh, with a few less tanks actually yeah. happened. Something really terrible happened there. But nevertheless, we welcomed England, uh, and not just any old England, England rugby, uh, to to the heart of uh, of our civilization there, Croke Park. Upon upon that sacred field, trod the hobnailed boots of the Saxon. Uh, I was going to say foe, but not anymore. And they sang their anthem, and boy, how we respected it out. We stood there and we respected, we respected the hell out of God Save the Queen. It's possibly never received such a respectful hearing as it did in Croke Park that day. And yet, who's giving? And and did we did we notice this? Yes, we did. Did we praise ourselves? Yes, we <laughs> oh, did. Yeah. Did we pat ourselves on the back? On haven't stopped doing it in all the time since then. But who's giving the England fans respect for what they did at the Aviva Stadium? What did they do? Well, I've, I've, they're the best behaved bunch of fans I've ever seen. Literally the best behaved away supporters I've ever seen at Lansdowne Road. I mean, contrasted to the, um, to the uh, antics of the Poles who arrived there and disrespected the health and safety regulations, disrespected the fire safety rules, lit flares all over the place, uh, mocked the lack of atmosphere uh, that the Ireland fans had created um, and generally showed us up. The England fans, I have to say, respected our national anthem. Did they sing? Uh, I was here last week su- su- saying that I was I was sure they were going to sing some trolling songs about the IRA, possibly not quite sure what they were singing about, but knowing that it would uh, it would cause annoyance and cause embarrassment to their travelling press corps at least. But no, there was none of that. Um, they did insist that Sepp Blatter had paid for our ground. Well, he did. Uh, that was agreed with by most of the supporters there. Partly. He partly paid partly for it. paid for some of the, some um, of the stadium, all right? So, I mean, if only he had paid for the whole thing. Uh, I mean, if it was called the Sepp Blatter Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> if it was called the Sepp Blatter Stadium, but Blatter had paid for the whole thing. Would we accept that? I think we probably would, Owen. That would be a good, legitimate deal for Irish football. Yeah, I was going to say, in the words of one man, Ken. That'll be good for the association. Good, good for Irish football. Good and legitimate deal for the association. We're going to talk to Emmett Malone about John Delaney in a little while. Right now, it's time for Kennedy's Report on Sport. So please, we will get back to the Ireland game. Let's not talk about it just yet. I don't know if we can handle that much excitement all at once. But let's let's point out that this was for those England football supporters who travelled to Ireland and got, who had who were prevented from getting a drink anywhere near the ground because of this ridiculous security operation. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, it was a Sunday after all. I don't know what it costs to make a policeman work overtime on a Sunday. Um, I'll tell you where most of them were working, actually. I, I thought that, compared to what I had seen in Temple Bar before and after the game, because I live not too far from there, uh, I went, I was going along by the Keys. I had a look in. It's about 11 o'clock in the morning, even, uh, probably about 11, half 11. A lot of the entrances and exits, still little laneways into Temple Bar were... Uh, being guarded, being supervised by Gardaí. After the game, the amount of Gardaí was staggering in Temple Bar at around about so four o'clock, we're probably talking about. Um, <laughs> didn't seem to be much of a wave of trouble, but there were, if anything was was going to break out, there was plenty, there were plenty of reinforcements there to get things sorted. Yeah, you get to that stage of police overkill where there's vastly more chance of a police brutality uh, incident happening, uh, if only just by by like random chance 
than any actual trouble involving supporters. I mean, look, obviously uh, people wanted to avoid a repeat of what happened last time and everybody's going to take all the proper precautions. Nobody's going to be caught short this time around. That nobody is going to be in a position where people are able to turn around and say, well, what? Yeah, you know, where was the preparation? Failed to prepare, prepare to fail. Um, but, you know, uh, I thought the England fans acquitted themselves very well, Owen. Very polite, very well-mannered. Just like the Ireland fans at Croke Park. I wonder, will they be talking about it for generations hence? Uh, the respect, just the, the respect that they show. England have finally matured as a nation, Ken, and that they can respect the Irish home supporters. I, they, haven't, I haven't read that article yet. Not just yet, no. Maybe somebody will write that article. This was our coming of age as a nation. You wanted to talk about the Champions League? I did want to talk about the Champions League, Owen. Um, I, I went to the final. I was, I was talking to people yesterday then about the game. They said, oh, great game. And I said, well... Was it really? And everybody, I said this, everyone was saying, didn't think so. I was like, no, not really. I didn't think it was. I thought, I mean, I thought it was an entertaining game, I suppose, in some ways, but it wasn't a game. Well, I mean, it wasn't a game, but it wasn't a, it was a display. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, the outcome was never in doubt. The outcome was maybe in doubt for about two minutes at the very beginning. Um, and then another two minutes around about the 60 minute mark. And that was it. Otherwise, it was a procession. And you, what it was is, you know, the best team in Europe at the moment, clearly the best team in Europe at the moment. I mean, I don't, it's only a few months ago on that we were talking about Barcelona in the Champions League in terms of them having a puncher's chance because they got all these, um, you know, great uh, forwards. Um, and actually what they've done uh, over the last couple of months is show that they are, by a distance, the best. They're ahead of... Um, well, certainly ahead of Juventus, we saw that. They, you know, they disposed of Manchester City with a minimum of fuss, um, outclassed Paris Saint-Germain and Bayern Munich, probably the only team that really, uh, I think, could give them a game. I mean, they did beat them, I suppose, Bayern in one of the games, although Barcelona were already leading, um, you know, 3-0 from the first leg. Um, and, you know, they, they, they really... I think they were better than Bayern as well. I think they showed, ultimately, you can have... Uh, this depth of uh, organization that Bayern have. You can have uh, quality across the field in all the positions. You can have this sophisticated team, this um, sophisticated collective um, way that Bayern play. And ultimately, if the other team has got Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez and Neymar, they're probably going to win the game. So the talents of the individual players... It kind of is reminding us that that's, that's ultimately what this comes down to. And I'm afraid that Barcelona... Barcelona have now, I believe, the two best players in the world in Messi and Suarez. I think that Suarez has surpassed Cristiano Ronaldo as the second best player in the world. I think there's still quite a big gap to Lionel Messi, actually. And then Neymar, to me, is a player who gets criticised a lot, but nobody has managed to do what he's done in the Champions League before, scoring in both legs of the quarterfinal, both legs of the semifinal and the final itself. Now, he scored a few of those goals in the last minute, or in the, I think it was the 97th minute he scored that goal the other night. Uh, but that's because he's such a lethal player on the counter-attack. Um, and he's giving he's, he's part of what makes Barcelona such a difficult team to stop. Um, I think what people enjoyed the game, or certainly what I enjoyed the game, was purely because Juventus, it looked early on as though... I think you described in the Irish Times piece as a, an anticlimactic goal, the way the first one was... It was so brilliant. Mm. Uh, and maybe I'm borrowing somebody else's words there, but uh, that there was a sense that, oh, that's amazing. And there goes the game. Yeah. <laughs> but in fairness, Juve stuck at it. I thought really struggled early on uh, from that goal for about 20 minutes, really struggled. Then clearly got a grip 
and there was just that old sense. It was something about it being Juventus, and I was probably ascribing qualities of the past to this current team, which they maybe maybe share some of, that led to a certain sense of, well, actually, hang on a second, if these guys get a goal, which they got, suddenly they're up. As Gerard Piquet said in his interview, we were effed. Uh, we thought, we were, you know, for a few minutes there. Uh, that Barcelona, even though they weren't at their very best, maybe, were at least forced into fourth gear to win the game. They were. I mean, because there was, there, there was definitely then a sense of panic. I mean, the roar from the events fans was, was incredible because they had very little to really get excited about at that point and they were watching the match mainly through their fingers. And then there was just, and it was so sustained. It was, like, it was this sound of, oh, you know, this kind of whole crowd beginning to believe yeah. there's no other way. Fate is on our side because of it wasn't there's no way this match would be 1-1 we're going to we're going to come back we're going to win this and then oh no oh, oh no and they knew they were never going to score again I mean they've, they've had their goal it was so difficult to score the first one um, you know Barcelona were always able to find another gear there was that kind of sense of is this going to be have the Bar- has the Barcelona hair just woken up to see the Juventus tortoise inching towards the finishing line is it going to be able to catch up um, yeah, actually, it turns out, yeah, with 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 room to spare. Um, uh, I mean, it was there was something a little bit strange. I thought about the the post match. I mean, you know, well, the, the celebrations were all fine. Danny Alves is an idiot. I just want to say, based on his based on his post match antics. Why? I just I just dislike it. You saw you saw you saw the kind of stuff he was doing. You know, just sort of yeah, he's excited and all, but to me. I didn't like it. I preferred Owen. I thought uh, uh, Lewis... You the old Tom Finney kind of manner, Stanley Matthews. Yeah. Just score your goal, win your match. Win Just your maybe time. maybe shyly wave to the crowd. Yeah. Shake hands. If you really feel ecstatic, shake hands with one, maximum two of your colleagues. Yeah. Walk back to the dressing room. Have a cup of tea. And Do the plumbing in Immediately go home. And immediately go home and exactly get get your toolbox and you're off out on your, on your plumbing rounds. You know, that to me... Would be, I mean, what what Alves was doing, this idiot, this screaming into the face of was it Adriano? Oh, insufferable he is. Sorry, it made for a great uh, that that shouting into the face made for a great super slow mo shot on uh, the TV coverage. Yeah, exactly, and it's all designed for that as well. There was Neymar personally communing. I mean, Neymar, Neymar, I I think is a brilliant player. I don't want to, I don't want to leave anyone with the impression I don't think that, but. You know, he puts on a bandana then, 100% Jesus. Why are you telling everyone this, Neymar? Why can't you just, why can't it just be between you and Jesus? When he had, he then knelt, he then dropped to his knees dramatically. Uh, he wasn't exactly T-bowing, you know, he was, he was Neymaring. He was, he was, uh, dropped to his knees, head bowed, 100% Jesus bandana pointed towards all the cameras. Uh, and he, he sort of got his hands out to the side, palms raised to the heavens. And he's there. And then, and then he be, he became so overcome by emotion in this uh, moment of communing with uh, with God that he he began to weep and he had to cover he had to lift his hands to his face to cover the tears that were coming from his his eyes. So overcome was he with uh, the joy of the Lord. And I thought, come on, just put it away. I think he should be fined for that. Actually, he should be fined. Why is that not why, why is that not a finable offence? I don't know, but it reminds me of a theory I have about the uh, international friendlies, Ken. Sorry to change subject. Uh, uh, with regards to uh, just pricing structure. Yeah. Um, tickets were, where I was sitting were 90. How did this remind you of international friendly pricing? Well, no, it, just the, I, I, it was my theory. I had one theory for today, Ken. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to lose it from my brain if I don't okay. give it to you now. 
90 euro where I was sitting, which is lower East End. N- nothing premium, uh, pricey enough, but there's no point paying money for something and then complaining about it being too expensive. <laughs> there's a supply and demand there market, which you could you could voice your concerns on silently by not buy, buying the ticket. Uh, I think it was 70 euro for some of the other tickets I was looking at. But my point is, for friendly internationals, yeah. I think there should be a, a ticket option where you just pay to go to the first hour of the game. Oh, so you, so you pay rather than ninety, you pay sixty to go to the first hour because the last half hour, no matter how good the first sixty minutes have been, the last half hour, or for each substitute that's made, you get a fiver knocked off your ticket, something like that, yeah. something to appease the fans who just struggle to stay awake for that last half hour of any friendly international. When the flow goes, the form goes, the shape is completely gone. So a flexible pricing structure whereby you could, if you left after half an hour, would get two thirds of the price of your ticket back. Uh, no, you can't. No, that's just two thirds is too much. Yeah. You have the option to leave after an hour. Okay. But you have to prove that you left after What an about hour. one where you just got to come in for the last 15 minutes? There could be issues there with crowd. Yeah, just crowd, it cause security it problems. Total chaos. Yeah. Although, you know, in ideal circumstances, maybe you could sell seats twice. Mm. You know what I mean? Someone would leave after an hour and then you could sell the seat to someone else for the last 20. Now, it would definitely cause... No, I was sick to my... Mine is the most sensible one, Ken. Very workable, I'm sure. Um, anyway, back to the Champions League. But no, you know, it's fine, it's fine apparently for Neymar to, to make this big uh, display of religion. I mean, I th- I'm sure that if somebody was to make some political statement, then UEFA would be all over that, finding them. But uh, this apparently is different. Um, a friend of mine pointed out that Neymar evidently isn't that familiar with Matthew 23. Um, that was uh, that was Jesus talking about the Pharisees and hypocrites. Um, uh, <laughs> whatsoever they bid you observe that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. Owen. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but be not ye called Rabbi. Owen. The point is that this is all a bit showboaty for me, right? If you're a Christian, that's great, but that's a personal matter between you and you and your God. Why are you doing this in front of a stadium of eighty thousand, in front of hundreds of photographers? You know, this private moment. Come on, you know. Actually, the photographers I thought were very intrusive at this event. When the Bar- when the Barcelona players, did you see the celebration at the end? When Neymar actually ran, he jumped over the advertising awnings, ripped off the shirt, celebrating there. Uh, and the Barcelona players come to join him and then they're hemmed uh, in the uh, game is still on just join like these ants yeah. suddenly you know um, are, are uh, swarming around them on all sides and like lifting their and completely obliterating this. I mean it was ridiculous I thought was the ball even kicked off after that surely the no. ball has to the ball doesn't have to be kicked off again no the ref just blew it up he's yeah. like do you want to kick off not really <laughs> <laughs> that'll, okay that'll do we'll, well you might want to pad the possession stats there Juve with just one little tip off We'll say that uh, we'll say that was the uh, that was the uh, that was the that was the yeah. end of it. But anyway, um, so just a, a little bit. Anyway, uh, Luis Enrique then afterwards. I mean, after the the press conference afterwards, Allegri first. Allegri seemed delighted. He was very proud of what he'd done, and the Italian press were very appreciative of the efforts of his team. Forza Grazia Ragazzi, and uh, he was applauded away. Um, Iniesta came in. Obviously, glowing with happiness. Why wouldn't he be fourth Champions League win in four Champions League finals? It's a, an amazing career. Um, Luis Enrique comes in, and he, honestly, 
with a face like a slapped arse. <laughs> I thought, well, this guy has just won the treble and seems so unhappy. This is weird. This is honestly weird. I remember seeing Ancelotti last year when he won the Champions League. He was beaming. You know, Ancelotti was like stupid with happiness. Just sort of, uh, this, is, this is great. At one point, Marcelo and a bunch of Sergio Ramos and a bunch of idiot Real Madrid players came, you know, dancing into the room, spraying champagne around, you know, haha, and then like ran out of the room again. It was all, you know, they were acting like, acting like fools or whatever, but they just won the Champions League. This is how you, you behave when you're really happy and a little bit drunk. Um, Luis Enrique, honestly, was just so miserable. You thought you would have thought he'd lost the game. Now, obviously, he hates all the Spanish media who give him a really hard time. And even there in this in this kind of victory, they're, they're kind of saying, oh, you know. One guy sort of started a question with, like, uh, you know, sincerest congratulations. Now, I mean, I, I, I'm saying this because I'm, he- I'm hearing, this is what I'm hearing in the translation, in the simultaneous translation. Sincerest and warmest congratulations, Luis Enrique. We have obviously criticised you a lot this season, but, and Luis Enrique kind of cuts him off, going, what, you want me to talk about the media now? You want me to talk about the media? You want me to talk about journalists, people who have criticised me? People who have had a go at me? I have zero interest in that. I'm thinking now about my players, about my family, about the people who have supported me. I have zero interest in talking to you about this media thing. And the media guy's like, uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, like, you know, things have like kind of gone well for you now. Uh, and he's like, no. You know, people, work needs to be assessed by things other than results. Then he proceeded to list off the results of the team. 60 games this season, 50 wins. <laughs> like That's a record for Spanish football, and I'd be surprised if any team has won as many as 50 games before in a season. Do you think in part of it is down to... Jose Mourinho, I remember being miserable after that Porto Champions League win. Oh, uh, that was just a pose. Yeah, but we didn't know that. At that uh, I suppose in retrospect, yes. Jose Mourinho's personality would lead you to believe that he could have put on a pose that day. Uh, but my point was going to be that maybe sometimes managers invest so much emotionally in a game that they, they're just drained. Yeah. They can't. They should be totally ebullient in front of the cameras, but they're, they're genuinely just shattered. I think that, that may be it. Like even say, even, even more so can. than players, because they have, to con- they, they have to do a lot more. Obviously, it's much more of a... 24 hour day week for them in the lead up to it whereas the players mainly just have to stay off their feet yeah I, I, I think definitely that that was part of what was going on with Enrique because I mean if you saw him during the game particularly when the second Barcelona guy went in he yeah. just went absolutely nuts and I'm not suggesting that he wasn't happy he was clearly delighted I mean this is this is vindication for him but it was just it was, I thought it was a weird thing to see this uh, here's a guy who's won who's won the treble it's a, it's a massive achievement I mean remember when you know, Manchester United won the treble. What a big deal that was. You know, Ferguson clearly, Ferguson could barely speak. You know, he was so happy. And even at a moment like that, Enrique is still kind of like... Now, I'm not saying that's the kind of guy Enrique is. You know, his, his bitter vendetta against the media takes over even at a moment of joy. What I'm saying is that winning the treble isn't actually that big a deal anymore yeah. for Barcelona. That's kind of the problem. They're the first team to have done it twice, um, to, to have done that treble twice, the one with the Champions League the league and cup first team in Europe to do it two times but the first time was only six years ago so this is becoming more common Bayern Munich did it in 2013 you know Inter did it in 2010 uh, it's become more of a regular sort of occurrence they were talking about it being historic it's not really historic anymore it was like you just actually a, a lot of the same guys just did the same thing a few years ago this is kind of now the new normal so when Luis Enrique was behaving like that and was less happy than Allegri Allegri has actually done much better than anyone expected, whereas Enrique 
isn't even going to get any credit for this and may not may actually leave that's the club. That's ridiculous, though, if he doesn't. That's the way it is. Yeah. And 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 is it really ridiculous? Does anyone really think Luis Enrique was an important part of this Barcelona team's success? For instance, if you were to have replaced Luis Enrique with the little horse that Stuart Pearce once brought out onto the field as a mascot that had been given to him by his daughter, would Barcelona have been significantly weakened we're this season by that about, change of staff? We're back to my question to Henk Tenkatek, aren't we? I think so. And I think the answer this time is different. I think the answer this time is yes. Um... Well, yes, to which... which could anybody, would it be fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? And you would say yes. And I'd have to say, regrettably, Owen, I think, yes, uh, that may, in fact, be the case this time. Okay. The, it, it's a team that's got a lot of, uh, a, a lot of experience. Uh, you know, you've, you've got Busquets, uh, you've got Xavi, Dani Alves, Messi. They've been playing together for years, PK. They know... Um, they they know all the automatic movements. You know, Pep Guardiola was training them and coaching them. They've been through all that. They've kind of they've internalized all that. And then to that they've added in, you know, an element of sort of chaos with Suarez and Neymar and, and uh you know, new kind of energy into the team. And at the moment they're just absolutely brilliant. Where to next? Oh, uh, Ireland, England, I suppose. <sighs> so <laughs> So we had to come back and see Ireland Straw. against England. This should keep all our podcasters here. A few of them are already pressing that bit where you click forward 15 seconds. Certainly I have that in, in my phone. Well, just click forward about eight times, get through these ads, get through this. Bit and bob. You shouldn't, you should always, just to be clear, always listen to the ads and never, and never skip on from uh, Ken, even when he makes it sound as though what he's about to say isn't going to be, be filled with Well, it's thanks to Rambo Direct, Ireland Saving Specialist, that all of this... Is, uh, exactly. And the Irish Times that all of this is uh, possible. Exactly. Um, but where were we? Oh yeah. So Ireland played England, and this is a this is a historic fixture, historic. Uh, but you know, historic in that I don't think people are going to be talking about no. this game that we saw. I mean, it was a strong enough England team, really, wasn't it? They they picked um, they picked pretty close to a first choice team, I thought. Yeah, there was a little fella. Near me, more so than Ireland. There's a big "Come on Ireland" roar. Everyone, it might have been after the national anthem, uh, or is that at one stage anyway? Early enough on in the game, and this little fella there with his dad says, "Very small, small young lad. Maybe his first ever international. I don't know. I'm sure his first time. I, I, I would guess his first time seeing a lot of these England players in the flesh." And he lets out a "Come on, Rooney," <laughs> <laughs> unashamedly. <laughs> was he trying to annoy his no, oh not, not he was too young to be thinking in those ways he, oh, just, okay. he was there to see Wayne Rooney uh, yeah. not to see Glenn Whelan he was like the 42,000 idiots <laughs> who came to see Liverpool against the League of Ireland uh, yes this little six year old kid again was one of those idiots yeah well look that's that's how it works these days I mean when the Ireland fans were, were booing uh, Sterling you know because he he wants to leave Liverpool I mean come on lads you know it I think I got the impression the Irish fans were looking for things to boo. I think it's a bit embarrassing. Though, they, to do they, booed, that. They, they booed the national anthem. Something we're going to mention Emmett Malone in a few minutes' time. Yes, we are supposed to be an independent country, but in another sense, we are a suburb of one of your uh, northwestern provincial cities, and uh, <laughs> and we will bring that club loyalty. You know, come on! I just thought it was. I thought. I thought. Well, be it as in, maybe you feel that way as a Liverpool supporter. I'm not suggesting that you know. As an Irish Liverpool supporter, an Irish supporter of a Premier League club, um, you're in some way culturally inauthentic. I mean, I was—I would never make that suggestion. Um, 
given that that's mainly what we talk about in this program. <laughs> I think it's entirely German. However, in an Ireland-England match, maybe maybe just to leave it to one side. I mean, the whole thing, there was no, there was no real sense of... I, I remember what these games used to be like. I mean, I was alive for these Euro 88 World Cup games, the Euro 92 qualifiers. That was really big. You know, these are massive sporting occasions. Maybe if it was a qualifier between Ireland and England, it would be like that again. I think so, and I don't think a friendly... I don't know if it would be exactly like that again. The but match in 95 was a friendly. Yeah. But the match in 95, just because there were a load of hooligans at it who ripped the stadium, it doesn't make it an amazing atmosphere. No, but what I mean is, I, I remember that game in 95, and the, and what a big deal it was for, for Kelly to score the goal. It was, you know, the, uh, and... I can't imagine anything. Unfortunately, we didn't have a goal to benchmark it against. We didn't, no, I don't, I, but I know I, I can tell you. I mean, when I remember when Shane Long scored at Wembley, uh, it was it, just, it was like, oh, great, we scored, you know. But it wasn't like it wasn't like David Kelly. I mean, a lot has changed. Mm. Uh, uh, all uh, and it's it's off the bat. I mean, it's just the the whole the booing of Sterling just showed. Well, we're we're the same, you know. Let's not try and pretend we're there's any difference here. You know, this is just sort of. To to people, identical people from <laughs> slightly varying parts of this island archipelago are having a game, a friendly match between their football teams. I mean, it it is, it's a bit. The whole thing's a bit antiquated, in a sense. It, international football is a bit antiquated. The idea of getting really excited about your national team playing is increasingly belonging to the past. But um, there've been a lot of developments going in the uh, FAI FIFA stories. Well, that's that's the. I mean, if we if we didn't. If John Delaney wasn't around, we'd miss him because he's the most exciting thing about Irish football at this at this time. It's like, um, I mean, it's what happened to him with this FIFA story is a bit like a guy who's at a bullfight and he gets really into it and uh, he sort of goes down the front and he's kind of he's maybe Matthew Simmonsing a bit at the Matador. He says, "You, you Matador, you know." It's a disgrace what you're doing, an early sheriff. You and he gets so excited, he actually overbalances and topples into the ring, and suddenly he's actually the man in the arena. <laughs> the whole world is is looking down to see what's going to happen next, you know. And and unfortunately, he gets he gets uh, caught by the bull and tossed. That's what happened to to the. It, I mean, I was thinking also of I was reminded the of the bull that, in this case being Ray Darcy, of course. Well, just the world. Well, Ray Darcy with with some subtle questioning. Interviewing Masterclass by Ray Darcy, I think, because he just managed to do it all in such a... Jovial, friendly yeah, manner. But there were some good questions there. I mean, at the very end, he said, you know, Delaney mentioned the movie, United Passions. Yeah. United Passions, which incidentally I saw Sporting Intelligence reported that it made $607 on its opening weekend in the United States. <laughs> 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 Suggesting that around about... Uh, 70 people out of a population of 314 million had been to see it on its opening Well, uh, some people would have weekend. probably got complimentary tickets. Just to, there, there was probably, know, a few, uh, probably a few comps, all right. But it was 600 and, I think it was $670 was the figure. Um, but uh, Delaney mentioned the movie and, and Darcy said something like, yeah, you know, they made a movie about themselves. Unbelievable ego, isn't it? And Delaney just said, yeah, incredible ego. You know, can, can you believe? Like, who would do that? Um... And he didn't notice, you know, he didn't, there was nothing. Uh, I, I don't think it was an accident that Ray Darcy said that. I'm, I don't think it was. But, you know, I was thinking also on about the uh, the guy in Copenhagen. Do you remember him? Uh, in the, the, the Denmark-Sweden match, he got, he, got ex- he got excited. Oh, he came on to he got onto the field. The he got onto the field. What was it they called him? 
the football moron. The football that? idiot. That's what he was called that in court. I think <laughs> the, he became. No, he was, he was dubbed. Idiot. He was dubbed the football idiot. Uh, I mean, just the way in which these things. For one moment, John Delaney is pontificating from the sidelines and lecturing uh, FIFA on, on governance, and and then suddenly he's pitched in there himself and having to fend off, uh, having to fend off all of these. Uh, I mean, outraged editorials, particularly in the English press. Um, it was it was really quite something to see, you know. And he's given an explanation, and you know, I don't think Eamon Dunphy was necessarily wrong when he said, when I, I don't think Eamon Dunphy was wrong when he said if. John Delaney got five million and he was chancing his arm, most Irish people would say, fair play to you. Mm. You know, you managed to come away with something from nothing there. Um, but obviously the fact that it was all sort of kept so quiet, uh, there was, and there was this quietness all about the whole deal. You know, it's like, we, uh, another thing that got, got a lot of play over the last uh, little while was the Streisand effect. This in reference to another big news story which was doing the rounds, or, or kind of doing the rounds, doing the rounds more in some places than others a couple of weeks back. Um, the Streisand effect, which referred to Barbara Streisand's efforts to suppress pictures of her mansion. Um, uh, and of course, it was her efforts to try and stop these photos from doing the rounds that suddenly got everyone interested in them. What? You mean Barbara Streisand's what? Her house is how big? Mm-hmm. And, and eventually, when everyone saw the photos, they were like, oh, you know, we kind of thought it would be bigger than that. But it was just a the information that Barbara Streisand lived in a house so gigantic that even she thought there was something slightly sordid and shameful about it that made everybody interested in seeing. So, you know, whenever there's secrecy, there's going to be, people are going to wonder why it's sort of, um, why it's, why the secrecy yeah, is there. And Eamon Dunphy can talk about timing, it just being a timing issue. And that's why people are up on their high horse because this FIFA story has happened. But it's, yeah, it's timing. And the timing involves Delaney's interjections in that FIFA story. Well, he's, he's held himself up to be uh, this guy on a rampage in, in, in favour of all things that are good and transparent in football and then it turns out that this thing has been uh, what has been going on for has happened a number of years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, been, I think the timing... Been fully told until now. I think the timing is true. I mean, you've got the world which is primed by all of this stuff that's happened with FIFA and Bladder and Bladder's just fallen and suddenly when when the whole world hears... Oh, hang on, FIFA like gave five million. Uh, there, there was some, you know, secret payment or hush hush payment of five million over the handball thing. You know, it's 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 got all the ingredients. Suddenly, a story which a year previously didn't get any traction suddenly has the ingredients for traction in this in this context. But uh, but the fact that John Delaney was so visible. I mean, we were talking about this. He was such a, a sort of a visible and vocal presence in that FIFA scandal. He had a uh, he, he struck a bit of a moralistic tone, talking about bladder, you know. He and and he did a lot of interviews, and eventually he did so many interviews that he ended up being asked about this. This this thing got dredged up again, and um, and the answers uh, turned into a story that spun out of his control. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. All right, that's, that's good manners. <laughs> players have played but they're still in the squad I wonder did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job no absolutely not no 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 it's none of their business you know what I was going to do it's a ridiculous question <laughs> <laughs> we want to win football matches there's nothing to tame you know some sort of animal you know what I mean and you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do he makes me look like what a Teresa you know he's um, I don't know and we want to win football matches 
We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. Food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Irish Times football correspondent Emmett Malone has called down to us to talk uh, uh, quite a bit about John Delaney. Emmett, we'll get to that in a couple of moments. How are you, first of all? I'm good, thanks, Phil. You, uh, I'm sure you got the same, roughly the same level of enjoyment from yesterday's atmosphere as the rest of us, but I was kind of struck, looking back at it now, being at the ground and everyone saying how peacefully it went sure. off, probably too peacefully yeah. or in too much of a docile fashion. Yet, the English national anthem was played as is custom before any international and was lustily booed by a section of the Irish fans. I'm glad you said that because I tweeted it. I got took a bit of stick on uh, uh, back from uh, people about it, um, saying that it, you know that it, the behaviour was good. It was a tiny, tiny minority. I I thought it was pretty lustily booed. And um, look, it's not you know you prefer people booing national anthems to kicking lard out of each other. But um, but the bottom line it was it was I thought it was disappointing. There were uh, the. It, Later, there were later renditions of God Save the Queen which weren't part of the pre-match ritual so I, they launched into the that's, that's I obviously think that's a slightly different, that's different a thing that's a football You're, chant yeah, uh, the English yeah. fans use and they got their pantomime bit and doing back on yeah, that yeah absolutely I think that, that falls under you know pretty, uh, pretty happily the uh, heading of banter uh, between fans and I think that's completely acceptable I, I think that it's really disappointing that we haven't reached the stage yet that, uh, that you know Ireland fans can't get through any visiting I, I know I know it's there are obviously you know a, a lot of uh, things attached to the British national anthem here. I'm not a fool, you know, um, and uh, you know there are a great many issues that you know that, that concerns that I would share. Well, I'm sure with the sort of people who boo these national anthems, but you're in a representative football match. It's good that the English FA have come here. Everything that we've achieved over the last kind of 15, 20 years on the island of Ireland has been, you know, terrific. You know, we mm. live in a different country and, and I think we're all grateful for it. And the extension of that is we just start paying respect, uh, you know, a very tiny, tiny sacrifice in all of this is you don't get to, uh, you don't get to kind of boo when the, the, the English national anthem. What about when Raheem Sterling touches the ball? We were able to show the English that though they may no longer colonise us in the literal <laughs> sense, we are firmly colonised in the cultural sense. And you think a proud moment for the Ireland fans? I'll just be by that. I, I kept thinking um, like the first few times it happened I kept thinking I'd kind of imagined it or there was something else going on or there was something I was missing you know and uh, and then and even now I'm not sure whether it was like whether it was, Liverpool was, fans was United or, fans yeah. Liverpool fans oh, was was, the, I was definitely Liverpool fans I assume I mean, there are that but, many of them there is, is, is an Ireland game so heavily populated by Liverpool fans do you like the United fans follow the North or something like that I mean I just I, I was completely perplexed by it I tell you, it's that, I, yeah, if it was Liverpool, I'd do well, an awful, there's an awful lot more people booing Raheem Sterling, to be fair, than there were booing the national anthem. I would yeah. probably acknowledge that. Uh, so, so what, is 30, 40% of the Irish support, you know, uh, Liverpool? I was in the Ballsbridge Hotel, the old juries, before the game, and uh, I and a few other Ireland fans were a bit perplexed when we found we, we couldn't have our bottle of beer before the game because right, they weren't yeah. even serving them in the pubs around the ground and the barman there assured us that it wasn't just in this in, in that bar he said you won't get a pint in any of the bars around the ground before the game because, it, because of gar- advice from yeah, Gardaí and they were only opening an hour beforehand yeah, yeah, so, yeah, like, so yeah they were expecting <laughs> they were expecting these hugely kind of uh, these, these fans with an enormously low tolerance of alcohol <laughs> to kind of pile but it was in a funny one that, well that's certainly what the Gardaí were advising Jeez. and the FAI within the ground took measurements well obviously staging the game at one o'clock for a start there were no replays not even of controversial incidents but on the big screens I noticed yeah. I'm pretty sure they're usually a replays of, of at least you do get that in a fair few English the games, odd, don't 
you? They, mm. they, they, they don't. They don't. Uh, they don't replay the most. Controversial what was there? Ones, was there a need yeah. for all this? Was it too sanitized, or were the FAI and the Guardian and everybody else perfectly within their rights to say, "Look, we couldn't take even a half of one percent chance of allowing the sort of atmosphere that might develop that would ultimately lead to any problems?" Well, I think look, if you go back to '95, there were a lot of mistakes made. Everyone came out of it looking pretty bad, and uh, and I think you know it's understandable that they were overly cautious this time. I, you know, I definitely do think that between them they contributed to the kind of how lacklustre an affair it was. You know, we've had the FAI, we've had John Delaney, you know, really bigging this up as a, as a, as a major event. Um, for a couple of years now, it was coming, you know, uh, certainly since, you know, a fair while before the Wembley game. Um, you know, still the English authorities had the confidence to play their game in the evening time. Um, here we put on a Sunday lunchtime, then we close the pubs beforehand. Um, then we have, you know, also Irish fans going in, being searched for banners, which don't seem to be, you know, uh, you know, targeting the English or the English fans, but rather the chief executive of the association. You know, you just have this kind of, the way the whole thing was run seemed kind of heavy-handed and clumsy and a bit daft, really. And, and what you get is, you know, what you deserve then. You get a really, you know, a really, really disappointing occasion. Everybody coming out of it saying it was very flat, wasn't helped by the game, but these things feed off each other. And, I, and I'm sure the kind of lack of atmosphere in the stands probably contributed to uh, to the, the disappointment of the game. One of the topical chants the English fans tried to strike up was Seth Blatter, he paid for your ground, which was greeted with warm applause by the Irish yeah. supporters there who, who seemed to agree with the sentiment being expressed by this. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that was... Uh, I, I, I don't know whether they came really expecting uh, <laughs> expecting to, this to... There's only one John Delaney something. to come yeah, back from the yeah, Irish supporters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, look, yeah, I think for the most part, it, you know, opinion slightly divided on when that was a good bit of business, you know. Um, certainly a better bit of business than the previous year when the FAI paid $5.2 million to Goldman Sachs for, for, you know, arranging a mortgage that they never took up. So uh, that was just money down the toilet. Um, you know, look... Um, there does there, seem to be some division of opinion here on, on whether Delaney was right to take the money or lobby for the money or whatever. But I think for the most part, people just think, you know, in the greater context of calls for transparency of FIFA and all that, it, it's just been a ridiculously bad week for, for the association and for Delaney. Well, Eamon Dunphy thinks it's just that the FAI and John Delaney is a victim of timing. He says they didn't do anything wrong. It just This is in the panel on Saturday night before the Champions League. It just looks bad. Well, that, that, that's not a direct quote from Eamon Dunphy, I should say. Yeah. Just in case, uh, you're, but essentially, he did, he did yeah, say... Yeah, to, to paraphrase it there, victim of timing uh, they haven't done anything particularly wrong um, ethically it just looks bad in the context of FIFA imploding yeah, in their, yeah. in their I have to say I think they have done something wrong I think they've played ball with FIFA uh, in a way that they shouldn't have um, uh, I, I do kind of think absolutely that the, you know there's a case sometimes for you know the FAO is I mean like, let, let us not forget uh, I was at all those AGMs I kind of sat kind of you know with my my jaw hanging loose you know as I looked at the uh, the accounts and I talked to people who were experts who just said like the the, the upbeat you know uh, statements uh, they were they were delivering at the AGMs in relation to the accounts were completely unrealistic that they couldn't be done as, as we've seen those you know those debts were, were completely uh, renegotiated uh, and it different time frame put on the repayments now I'm not you know they are still struggling but in those in, the, in that period they were completely up against it um, so I can understand the, the real politic of what they were doing here, which was trying to stay in business, you know, and uh, of course that is the reality of the situation we are on. And there were people within football and within the association who certainly credit John Delaney with having, you know, having pulled off something that uh, other people wouldn't have been able to pull off. But the real and, and, and if you accept that that's where you are in football, then fine. 
but it does not sit easily or at all with the previous you know week or 10 days of John Delaney going around calling for transparency and calling for you know proper governance and you know in his account of of what happened with FIFA he met with Blatter on the Thursday and some sort of financial arrangement had been reached by the Monday. Did John Delaney seriously think that, you know, in one working day plus a weekend, you know, proper governance procedures had been gone through at FIFA level? That was in the Ray Darcy interview, although when they put out their statement on Friday night, it gave a more detailed timeline, which seemed to suggest that there were two different well, meetings. Yeah, absolutely. There, there were several. There were several different versions of this. You have to say, you know, and if you take the FIFA, st- if you take the FAI statement issued on Friday night, it also suggests, or certainly John Delaney's commentary on it on, on RT television that evening suggests that you know, in actual fact, all the comments he previously made about all this being hung on the handball and the outcome of the game were actually kind of beside the point. It was about so the seeding. It was about the seeding, it was about the uh, which had come up beforehand and which they hadn't, to the best of my knowledge, to objected to, and crucially. The documentation which he was pointing to on television in front of everybody going, you know, all our concerns, all the real concerns we had are outlined in this document, flatly contradict what, you, what he's saying because in actual fact they, they, they support his original claim that it was all to do with the handball. But I would, you know, humbly suggest that in actual fact we should go back to uh, last July and, the, inter- and the, the story that was carried in the sun and the unnamed FAI official, whoever that could have been, um, suggesting at that point that um, the, the real concerns of FIFA was that the FAI were sort of threatening to go to the Congress in South Africa um, and kick up a stink and FIFA... Throw, throw their shoes at... Uh, yeah, yeah and exactly. And that, and, and that FIFA just, you know, uh, so little do they think of 5 million euro that they threw, they threw that amount of money at the FAI just to make them go away and, and to keep them quiet. And I think to me that's, you know, in all that I've heard and all the kind of lawyers I've heard on the you know, uh, radio over the last few days talking about the kind, you know, rather dismissively of the, the, the various claims that the FAI have made, the various contradictions that have existed between the FAI's uh, account of uh, events and, the, and FIFA's account of events. The fact that, you know... At a time that they are calling repeatedly, John Delaney has called repeatedly for transparency, so little is given away except under absolute pressure where, you know, the government, they, we get to the stage where the Taoiseach is kind of demanding um, a statement of explanation from the FAI. I, I, you know, none of it sounds credible to me. Did we, um, I mean, you mentioned that, I mean, that it came out in July last year. Um, and in fact, I think um, someone pointed out to us, was on the day of the World Cup final, right. the day after the World Cup final, well, don't the day, day of the World day Cup off, final, Sunday, yeah. Um, but you know, we knew about this uh, since <laughs> and, last year. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would accuse myself certainly of failing maybe to notice how how big a deal this was going to be. I mean, having seen what a sensation it became last week, obviously, you know, as Amy Dunphy pointed, the context of, the, of this scandal, maybe it had a sort of a, maybe people were like, well, hang on, well, FIFA paid five million, what, what, what went on here? But, you know, it was called a bung in the UK, a bribe by the Spanish yeah. press, a joke, the head of, that was the head of the German FA. Jose Mourinho said, this is the end of the world. Um, it was on the front page of the papers in Brazil. Sure. <laughs> but... I mean, I, I think we never true. said anything about it. No, I don't, I don't. See, I don't think that's well in, entirely true. And I can only, I can only speak for myself here in, in the way that I viewed it. I mean, I absolutely, I was at the World Cup final. Uh, and I came back and I wasn't aware entirely of the story. I kind of knew that something happened. But I, be, later that week when I got back to Ireland, I became aware of it. At the AGM, you know, there were other things going on. I mean, it had been quite a remarkable week with Delaney. He got a new contract, I think, and he spoke about that in The Sun. Um, he, the Sun, he, yeah, the Sun he, got a lot of FAS, they got so. They had quite a week. They had quite a week of it. They had uh, two double-page spreads. 
threads with Delaney. He talked about uh, his personal relationship, um, uh, past and present. He spoke about um, uh, his drinking in Poland and how he regretted some of that. He talked about the terms of his new contract. And the same week, the same week, they, uh, they previously, they, on the, the previous Sunday, that was Thursday, Friday, those two spreads. On the Sunday, uh, the same reporter who had interviewed him for those two spreads re- broke the uh, the five million story. Which was from an anonymous source. Which was from an anonymous source, absolutely. Um, and on the day after the two, the second of the two spreads, on the Saturday, a different reporter had a story uh, outlining um, uh, the pay that uh, Roy Keane, Martin O'Neill are receiving from the FAI, plus the contribution that Dennis O'Brien makes to that. So um, quite a week for the sun, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I have to say at the time, it came back, the AGM, there was other stuff going on. I, I, I thought, you know, I like a lot of other people, I think that this was a remarkable story, but the timing of it, you know, it had been in the, in, in, in the uh, public domain for four or five days, another paper had run it, uh, the FAI had subsequently, uh, apparently with people who had been here and tried to follow it up, um, just said they had no comment, so there was some slight, but I always kind of thought that this would come back, you know, mm-hmm. that, there would, that it would have its moment. And seven days of uh, seven days of tra- of Delaney calling for transparency of FIFA calling you know criticizing Seth Blatter for the way he did business uh, calling for better government calling for you know all sorts of manner you know uh, supporting you know by implication I think the sort of uh, claim, uh, calls that were being made from the organisations like Transparency International certainly yeah. um, pointing to UEFA as a model of good government by comparison with FIFA I think all of that teed it all up and when he was asked about it originally on Morning Ireland um, uh, and then on on. Ray Darcy, uh, I, I think, you know, he had made, I, I think if I could say this, that I had the BBC onto me last week and they were kind of astonished by this, you know, but I think that it's more of an Irish story than it is an international story. It's for the international community, it's simply yet another example of what we already FIFA. knew, which is how FIFA did its business. For us, it's a story, and the timing is crucial in this, of the staggering hypocrisy that Delaney d- displayed in, you know, and continues to display in the way he calls for one thing at FIFA level and, and the way he runs the FAI here. He would uh, argue that, has argued, that, look, the money came in, uh, it is accounted for. Sure. Obviously, you wrote a very detailed piece uh, about there being no specific mention of, yeah. the, of the money in the accounts at any stage that you went over yeah. in those years. He said, well, it's in there. I couldn't reveal exactly, uh, I couldn't specify sure. what it was within the accounts at the time because... There was a confidentiality. Sure. Uh, there was a two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollar fine yeah. if anybody in the FAI started shooting their mouths off about this. So essentially, the less people that know, the better. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. Uh, so, but it is in there. It's in the turnover. It's gone in, and it's gone to. It went to the stadium, which is yeah, yeah. what was supposed I to happen. Doubt so for a moment. I never really doubted that that that. The it money, went, the to, money had it went gone to the stadium. To yeah, yeah. Goals, I mean, everything yeah. was going into the stadium. You know, absolutely everything. They were, you know, they yeah. were so they were they were so in so much trouble that absolutely everything was going to the stadium. No problem with that, right? The idea that the world's governing body, FIFA, and the FAI should do a deal that requires a major any deal that I can think. I can't think of the circumstances in which those two organisations should be doing a deal with each other that requires a confidentiality clause. It's yeah. outrageous. Both of them should. I can absolutely understand. I've been at a ton of you know situations where I've asked John Delaney how much money was going one way or how much money was coming another way, how much the three sponsorship worth is, how much, how much Umbro gave them, whatever. I can absolutely understand. You know, I'm, I would love him to answer those questions. I think there's a case to be made for him answering those questions but I do understand that there's also a pretty strong case to be made for not answering those questions there are commercial sensitivities on, all, on both sides I cannot under any circumstances imagine how FIFA and the FAI should have a confidentiality clause in it it is clearly wrong 
for those two organisations to hide businesses, the, the business that they do between them. And in this circumstance, these circumstances, the only reason for FIFA, I'm not blaming the FAI for that, they took the money, they were prepared to sign whatever was put in front of them, and that's so often the case with, with, with confidentiality clauses. But it robs them absolutely of any high moral ground here, you know? Yeah. Um, they have said that they couldn't talk about this. Well, why did they put themselves in that position? And if it was wrong for FIFA to do the business, then the FAI shouldn't be do, doing it in the yeah. first place. I mean, the, the funny thing about it, I thought, listening to John Delaney's, for instance, on Ray Darcy, yeah. he actually sounded a little bit proud of it. He well, said, he said, that, it, yeah, it, it, he, sure. he certainly wasn't discouraging Ray, yeah. Ray Darcy was saying, oh, five million. And John Delaney I, said, I, you put a figure out there, well done to you, fair play to you. You know, he, it sounded as though he was, he, he sounded quite pleased I with himself. I don't really understand what happened there. And this is something I'm still completely perplexed about. He's asked about it on Morning Ireland. The, the figure is put to him and he doesn't, he mentions a confidentiality he doesn't deny agreement. It. He says, yeah, that's something to do with a kind of legal challenge we had he against He said, it's, it's, it's definitely not patronage because we never supported Sepp Blatter, which I think is true in all cases apart from 2011 when well, they did Well, I, I, I haven't checked back beyond that. In 2011, there were certainly calls for them to abstain or to destroy their ballot or not to vote or whatever, but they did vote for him yeah. uh, along, with, along with most of UEFA. Um, but, but crucially, yeah, as you say, in that, in that interview with Gavin Jennings, he says, um, yeah, we had a bit of a legal challenge there and you know it, but it, it's confidential for the moment so he certainly doesn't deny it um, there are there is a couple of reports of it but not a huge amount made of it doesn't take, get legs internationally because nobody's quite sure he doesn't deny it and he, but he doesn't quite do enough for it to, to go away he essentially kind of confirms that it's true he certainly mm. you know and then in, in, in Ray Darcy, Ray Darcy just brought it up, just, just mentioned it. He just kind of lets his guard down completely, as you say, kind of a vague notion, you know, of, of bragging about heard it. You, that heard he's, you that talking about that on the radio, and yeah. he just gave the whole. And um, and it was still, you know, for uh, and 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 this is quite a doozy of a confidentiality clause. You know, it takes up about a third of the of the legal document that um, the FBI put out the other night. I, I suspect it's, you know, the confidentiality clause that all other confidentiality clauses <laughs> doff their cap to, you know. Um, you know, that, uh, that you know, the FIFA would still be in the position to take him for the 250 grand. They, as far as I'm aware, only put out a statement after um, he had spoken on radio and after this was, as yeah, you said, doing around the world it was, over. It was, it was only a few hours later and they, they put out this statement and it, I I thought, I, I thought to myself, FIFA definitely aren't happy with what's been sure. said here. You know, what no, I mean? Just, I mean, look, they just need this like a hole in the head at the moment. They're, you they're know? not doing anything. I, I, to I, I want to do, yeah, yeah, it'd be a little, it'd be, it'd be a little rich of FIFA to be going after people over I, this kind I, of thing I agree. at this stage. I, of their I, wouldn't, existence. I wouldn't put it past. Like, I completely no, I completely agree. I think at this stage it's gone beyond that. You know, they're not in a position to, to start criticizing for people for for breaking ranks on this sort of stuff. But they also, and I think it's quite pointed in their statement, mention as a sort of aside. Yeah, yeah, everyone was lending the FAI money at the time. Sure, UEFA made lent the money at the time <laughs> exactly, as well. Yeah, yeah. Now we get we have a slight reference to that at the time. Joseph Kohler, the uh, then uh, head of finance at, at at UEFA, was quoted widely at the time in the, in, in the Irish Times and other papers, saying that yeah, you know, the FAI they were in trouble. They, we went and we met with Danske Bank with them and we explained that we could help out or whatever. And every and, and Delaney, I think, absolutely confirmed that they borrowed some money at the time. They got a bit of an advance, a bit of an advance, and some solidarity payments. 10.5 million euro. <laughs> I mean, this is a third of what they turned over for that year. And, it's and there's also, no mention of it in the account. The, I mean, the, the, it's, it's a huge sum of money, Emma, because you mentioned in your piece that it's actually 
uh, not just from the FAS point of view, but also from UEFA's point of view, for the you know in terms of a loan from them, uh, ten million represents more than a third of the total amount outstanding to all UEFA member associations that signed. That's right, yeah, and they kind of you know uh, at the time there's some sort of quote somewhere I can't remember what the FAI say or somebody says, yeah, ah, look, it's pretty run of the mill. We do this. I think it's a UEFA quote in a statement saying that well we do this you know uh, we do this pretty pretty not kind of run of the mill sort of way when uh, associations um, uh, present a suitable business plan. That's not what they say in their accounts. They say that they do it in exceptional circumstances, you know, where, where essentially where, where associations are, are struggling. But that's all, again, perfectly fine. Now, that's, you know, um, at the time they did talk about it. I don't quite know. I think the Sunday Times broke the story at the time in June of 2013. The loan had been made in, in March. I don't expect them to take an ad out in the papers saying that they do this, but there yeah. wasn't the same sort of level of, of, of secrecy. There doesn't appear to certainly have been a, um, a confidentiality clause. Um, but the amount of money is huge. Now, John Delaney went on radio last week or, or you know, in the, around the bladder time going, you know, I think it was the Gavin Jennings interview actually as well on, on, on Morning Ireland. And he says, you know, look, we put accounts out there. We present them to the public. We have our AGM. Uh, we, you know, people are allowed to ask questions. Um, I don't know what more we can do. Well, it's pretty obvious what they can do. They can supply people with enough information to at least ask informed questions. He goes on TV the other night and says, oh, the money's all there. It's in turnover. What sort of joke is that? You know, the idea that uh, you have these huge sums of money that represent very, very significant chunks. In one case, between 10 and 15% of turnover, depending on which year you look at. In another case, around a third of turnover. You just lob them in there, unannounced, not even not even worth a mention as so, an exceptional item. This is Such not- that people who look at the accounts would not would not be aware that, in fact, nearly a third of the turnover or a quarter of the turnover figure w- was Yeah, I, I, you, you say that, a third or a quarter. Mm. You know what? I don't know which it is, yeah. because I don't know whether the 10.5 million in this case is included in that figure of around, uh, I think it's, I think it's 30 million uh, in turnover. Um, it would be 30, included, 37 million. It would be included in, in, in the accounts. That, when you're in saying, turnover, I'm not sure. I'm well, not sure again, whether the accounts turnover or whether it would just be under loans, but there was so much shifting of loans that year because they renegotiated the, uh, the mortgage. Um, they haven't talked about that. We don't know how much interest they're paying on the new mortgage. Um, there it's are not so, classically transparent. So, so many questions to be asked about. And, you know, look... And this goes, this is even before we start on, you know, uh, how, you know, what people are earning in there, what expenses are being paid. Um, You know, what we really need at this stage is just like with FIFA, we need the FAI to come out and throw open the books, absolutely throw them open, inviting forensic experts, you know, to go through them with a tooth comb and say, this is all fine. And that will restore confidence. And until that happens, I don't think there can be re- any real genuine confidence in the FAI. Well, why wouldn't they do that, given that John Delaney has has repeatedly uh, called for transparency in the in the ring of FIFA? I mean, why, why I, would he not? I, I don't see how. I don't see how. He can justify not doing that. He has called for it at international level. FIFA is an enormous organisation. You know, uh, it is, would be a very complicated business. By comparison, the FAI is small. Uh, its accounts would be suitably, you know, would be correspondingly smaller. It should be a fairly straightforward uh, process, but it, it needs outside people to go in. It needs, you know, on an ongoing basis, going forward, as John would like to say, I'd like to say, uh, it needs outside supervision. It needs, you know, uh, all sorts of changes. But all of these changes have been recommended at FIFA level. And as far as I can, as far as I can see, Delaney has supported them. Let's see at home exactly the same sort of things that he has been calling for at FIFA level. All right, Emmett, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, dear, oh, dear. 
<laughs> Bakery, ooh, got involved with a logistics company in Waterford, partly involved with a furniture shop in Athlone. We leased the pub in, in Tralee. John Delaney could run anything. Ah, okay. Yeah, well, when he comes up, then give me a shout. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow, too, don't forget that. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, I just want to go back to. We've mentioned Eamon Dunphy a couple of times and the panel chat on uh, before the Champions League. How important do you think the support of Dunphy and Giles is here, right? Because John Delaney's under a lot of pressure. Politicians are talking about him. And while they're not calling for him to go, there was a story in the Sunday Independent yesterday that uh, the, that you see, senior politicians are saying he's one slip away from being out of there. Uh, there's plenty of pressure from a lot of places. But not from couple of places, not from within his own association. From what we can, from what we hear, John Delaney is very powerful within there, and there doesn't seem to be anybody willing to try to take him on or, or try to oppose him in any meaningful way. For, certainly, from the stories that come out of the AGMs, and the members else. are very happy with the way he's running the association. Uh, so you're left with, I don't know, maybe I'm attaching too much importance. But if Dunphy and Giles are taking totally opposite opposite tack on this, or decided even just this weekend, well, we've supported John Delaney by and large, but actually this. This can't happen, you know. This there's serious issues here, and they've gone down that road. I wonder how much of an impact that would have because the amount of people that still watch those guys and maybe still take their lead from them, and they, that could be partly subconscious on behalf of a lot of Irish football fans. It's not like we everyone goes around saying, "Oh, this is what Dunphy and Giles are saying," but there's maybe there's there's still quite a bit of power in the opinions that they hold. Definitely, because I mean, it's the one thing that everybody who's watching a match on TV sees. I'm not saying it's the only thing they see. It's the one thing that everybody sees. You know what I mean? Everyone reads their own papers or listens to their own radio shows or, you know, has their own thoughts in their head. But the one kind of common thing which everyone is... is, is ha- the one thing everyone has in common is that if you're watching the match on TV, you will see what Charles and Duffy are saying about it. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, and if they're kind of... <laughs> they, Duffy in particular was very dismissive that there was any anything, you know, wrong here. And... Uh, and I do, I do think that's very significant support. It's very significant support for John Delaney. I mean, if he, you know, the situation that you're outlining, you know, if they were to take a different tack, if they were to say, well, you know, we were involved in a playoff in 1965 where we were sold down the river by the FAI, and this is exactly the same as that, then, <laughs> then the situation would look a lot, a lot more bleak, I imagine. But yeah. of course, they didn't do that. Jonathan Wilson is ready to talk about Champions League. Jonathan, most people seem to have enjoyed it. I certainly did. Ken thought it was a bit of a one-sided drubbing when you strip everything uh, out of it. Did you enjoy the game? I did enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it was a slightly odd game. I think in that 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 goal, the first goal, um, it almost was it was too good a goal to come that early in the game. That. Um, if you looked at the reactions of the last four players, the last four Barca players that touched the ball before it went in, so, so Rakitic, Iniesta, Neymar, and uh, Jordi Alba, they sort of, you know, they they celebrated together before the rest of the team got there, and their reaction, they sort of arms spread, mouths open, as if, can you believe we just did that? And I, I think that sort of the next twenty minutes or so, both sides were sort of um, unsettled by that. The Juve was sort of thinking. Yeah, I mean, presumably whatever plans they'd had had gone out the window immediately. But Barca, I think, were a little bit unsettled by by thinking, you know, how just how brilliant could we be here? Um, and I think that possibly explains their wastefulness. You know, I mean, they did miss a lot of chances. Um, but then you see, at the start of the second half, you thought, oh, they are actually going to batter them here. They had the two really good chances, and then they conceded. And so suddenly, for 12, 15 minutes, there was a game. And I think maybe when they look back at you, they'll think that they, they went a bit gung-ho in that 12, 15 minutes. So they, they perhaps they, they, they sniffed Barca's doubt and, and chased the game too much. And then 
they end up getting done on the break, which is when you're level against Barcelona, so it's almost criminal to do that. So I, I know what you mean, Ken, that it, it could easily have been very one-sided. It turned out not to be, and it was almost uh, Barcelona's failure to, to live up to, to their early brilliance that, that, that meant it wasn't. Um, and I think, I think the compa- there's, a, there's an interesting comparison here. If you, if you look back to the final in 1973 when Ajax beat Juventus, and Ajax in that game, he was their third, third successive final, third successive victory, and they scored a, a brilliant goal after four minutes as well. And they spent the rest of the game making a point against Juventus, uh, who obviously their Juventus style of play then was, was very negative, very influenced by Catanaccio, quite cynical, quite physical. And Ajax just took, kept the ball off them, just sort of passed the ball around and sort of made a point of that we're goading you, which I, I think then led to the, the, the 1974 World Cup final when they also when the Dutch national team tried to make a point and, and failed. And I, I sort of got a sense that part of Barcelona thought, should we be doing that kind of thing? And I think maybe under Guardiola they would. They just have held the ball, killed the game. But this side's a little bit rawer than that. It's a little bit nicer, if you like, than that. And they, they kept chasing goals. Uh, I mean, you have to have a lot of respect for the way that Barcelona are able to absorb the losses of apparently indispensable figures like Pep Guardiola, uh, like Xavi. I mean, Xavi came on, uh, obviously, for to get a run, only touched the ball uh, twice, I think, according to the official statistics, in, in nearly 20 minutes. I mean, you wouldn't notice these guys were gone, and yet you're talking about the greatest manager, you know, hailed around Europe as the best manager of his generation and the best midfield player of his generation, and Barcelona just, just go on and you don't notice any tip in quality. Um, well, I think he did for a couple of years, but I think also, I, mean, I think this is sort of a quite a, an intriguing thing about just the cycles of teams. That I think with Guardiola by the end, and it's partly to do with, with his own intensity, there was a sense of, of exhaustion, not only about him but about that team. And there was this, I, I, you know, the last couple of years under Tito Villanova and, and then under Gerardo Martino, there was a sense of drift. And I think under Villanova, there's obviously so much else going on with his health that yeah, it's perhaps understandable that, that there wasn't great leadership from the top. Martino, I think, has admitted since he never really felt he was equipped for the job, that he sort of felt slightly out of his depth from, from the beginning, uh, which obviously Luis Enrique had, had issues himself, but, it, but has overcome them. Um, but I think what's fascinating is that um, there were six players involved who, you know, who played sometime, came on the pitch at, at some point, um, on, on Saturday, who had also played some role in the 2009 final. So you're talking six players have been there for seven seasons and have been successful. Now, that's an extraordinary number. If you compare it to, to the Real Madrid side that won five European Cups in a row, they, they only had three players who played in their first final, who played in the last. So yeah, that, that's, that's a huge number. That's, a, you know, it's, it's, that's incredible continuity. And yet, the three goal scorers were, were new players who came in. So I think what they've done exceptionally well is to keep that core the same. But they've, what's happened this season is it's, it's been refreshed. They've slightly changed the style. And that's sort of been enough to arrest that sense of drift, that there's now this you know, a, a renewed vigour and you know, a, a renewed sense that there, maybe there are greater summits to climb. Well, they, I mean, they've won four of four Champions Leagues in the last uh, 10 seasons. Actually, um, it's not just six who played in 2009. There was also three in the squad in 2006. Messi, Xavi, who didn't actually play in the final. Um, and Iniesta, who did come on against Arsenal when they, when they won that first of this kind of four. Um, the interesting thing, I think, when you look at that is, even though you've got some of the same guys running throughout the whole story, um, quite a few in the more recent ones, um, actually, each of these teams has had quite different characteristics. Um, 
No, you know, you couldn't really say that the 2019 was really that much that, that like the 2011 thing. They're quite different, and this one obviously is so different. I wonder which, uh, when you look at the four of them, is the one that uh, impressed you most. I, th- I think, in some ways, 2011. I mean, I think that was just uh, the way they they approached that final, the way they won that final. I mean. Manchester United just never had a sniff there. They were just played off the park from start to finish. The the, the moment when, when Rooney equalised was sort of a, how's that happened? And you did, so I had no doubt that, that Barca would go on to win it. Um, and and I, I guess that's a very, in terms of the philosophy that, that Barcelona have have, um, have embraced since Vic Brockingham and Rhinus Michaels and, and Jonas Cruyff first, uh, and Jan Cruyff first got there, um, that that was sort of a very pure incarnation of that. You'd probably say this side is is in some ways better to watch. It's more exciting. It's more thrilling, but it's probably not quite as pure. So I suppose which you prefer uh, depends on on whether the, the purity of that that side of 2011 whether that slightly bores you, whether you find that slightly almost sanctimonious. Um, but I, I suspect the 2011 side would never have let Juve back into the game in the way that, uh, the, that this Barca did, albeit only for a quarter of an hour or so before they, you know, they, they, they got back on top. Well, Gerard Piquet was quite interesting speaking before and after the game because this was put to him at the press conference before the match and he seemed slightly irked by it. He said that when it wasn't going well for them earlier in the season, they were being compared unfavourably to those previous teams. Now that it is going really well, again, people want to decide which is... You know, which is the better team, which he seems to think is quite futile, which maybe it is, uh, Jonathan, but if we didn't talk about this kind of thing, then I don't know what people would talk about uh, with regards to, to football in general. But he was saying after the game also, look, I feel that there's an insane level of talent in this squad. And he was talking really positively about what's going to happen in the next few years. You get the sense that, OK, while they might have let Juventus back into the team, there's a confidence again about this Barcelona team that, that might actually uh, enable them to start dominating Europe again. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I think the the failure of Guardiola's Barcelona to to retain the title, which you know sort of become the holy grail of the Champions League era now, that well, you know it's twenty five years since Vigo Saki's side did that, and you know in a competition that posed quite actually quite different challenges, uh, I, I think that is a real motivating factor. That I think that was something that, that niggled away at Guardiola that you know, they should have been the first to do it, and I think actually you, you even I mean. I suppose, you know, I suppose myself, but I heard other people saying it as well that when we got the semi-finals this time around, you look at you looked at that Real Madrid side, and you thought, well, yeah, they're great, and they you know they won it well last year and everything. But do you really want that side to be the side that's the first to retain it? No, you want a true great side, a side for the ages, and maybe this Barcelona side is a side for the ages. And I think it's, it makes complete sense for them to be looking forward with with great optimism because you know, okay, Xavi's gone, but apart from that, there's no real need to to change anything in that side. Uh, I mean, Iniesta's probably the first one who's going to have to be replaced, but but he's still got a couple of seasons left. Dani Alves possibly, but again, he he's got a couple of seasons left and has the great advantage now that he, he doesn't seem to be playing international football. So you know, there's no reason why this side can't can't just go on as they as they have been next season. And and, and I think that that drive of bec- to become the first side to attain the Champions League, I think that is still a huge, uh, it's still a huge motivating factor. Would you agree that the only really ind- indispensable figure um, at Barcelona is, is Messi at the moment? I mean, the, you know, thinking back to what Mourinho was saying um, a couple of weeks back, uh, look, a team is a team, but a team with this boy in it is, is a different thing. 
yeah, I think that's probably fair. But um, and I think that might, might become even more true as Ronaldo starts to to wane, which I, I think we've already started to see that, which is an inevitable thing. I mean, he's what thirty one now, uh, and I think yeah, he will fall back and leave Messi as unquestionably the greatest in the world. Um, and and yeah, you know, the fact that Messi links so well with Neymar and Suarez, who are also two of the best ten players in the world, is a huge advantage. But it's still it's still all about Messi. I mean, even Saturday when you know by his standards he had quite a quiet game, he still had a key role to play in both the first and second goals. He saw he stopped Patrice ever getting forward because ever didn't dare leave him. So I mean, he, he still was was fundamental to that win, even if he didn't score, even if he didn't you know, provide a direct assist. Um, uh, we haven't really spoken much about Juventus. I mean, you saw how happy uh, Massimiliano Allegri was after the game. He, he actually seemed a lot happier than Luis Enrique, who just won the treble, which was kind of weird. But, you know, he had massively outperformed the expectations for the season. Um, you know, he was getting applause from the journalists and so on. But what Juventus have done, I mean, in the slightly longer term, is, is really impressive. This is a team that was sent down to Serie B uh, less than 10 years ago. Uh, lost most of its best players at that point, uh, has you know has rebuilt itself again into this you know domestic title winning juggernaut back into the Champions League and you know gave a, a pretty creditable performance against Barcelona uh, as well as you could imagine maybe any other team doing in circumstances. And the interesting thing about Juventus is that when you look at this team they've put together, they haven't they they haven't built it by spending a ton of money. I mean, their most expensive player is still Buffon, who they bought in two thousand and one. Um, you know, look down through the rest of the team. There aren't huge signings there, just a lot of clever ones. Why is it that Juventus are able to, to build teams, uh, or able to build a team so much more efficiently and intelligently than English clubs who've got twice as much money to throw around? <laughs> um, well, I, yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess, um, well, we, English teams are wasteful. We know that. English teams are constantly looking for change. Um and perhaps they would, you know, an English team wouldn't have taken a risk on on Pirlo, who was must have been over thirty when he, he joined Juve. Or you know, Tevez had sort of been written off in England because of all the issues he had, both at United and City, and, and well, lesser at West Ham. Um, so, yeah, maybe there's something about the pace of the Italian game that you can get away with an older player there. But I mean, that's to be honest, that's often excuses for English clubs. English clubs waste money dreadfully. And I, I think yeah, the example of something like Southampton shows it is possible for an English club to um, to, to, yeah, to put together a decent side on, on not a huge budget. Uh, I, I guess the follow-up question to that is Southampton finished what, seventh in the league. Where would Juve finish in the Premier League? I suspect they, they'd struggle to get in the top four. I think it's one thing to produce clever performances in the Champions League yeah, every couple of weeks. Uh, I, th- I think the, you know, the, the, the the grind of, of domestic football in Italy is far less significant than it is in England. I'm not saying Juventus wouldn't get in the top four, but I, I don't think they'd they'd win a title. And I I, I think it would be an effort for them to get in the top four. Um, so I think you've always got to be aware of that. That uh, a foreign, you know, aside from 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 not England or perhaps not Germany, not Spain, can look slightly better than it actually is by performances in Europe. Whereas if you got them playing 38 games over a season, flaws might start to appear. Yeah, I mean, they do rely, I guess, heavily enough on Paul Pogba in their midfield. Paul Pogba, a couple of seasons ago, was judged by Alex Ferguson not to be ready to come in and, and play regular role in Manchester United. Now it seems like Barcelona uh, might be interested in signing Pogba. I mean, this is the biggest game he's played so far in his career. 
uh, a hugely hyped young player. Did he impress you? Is he is he Barcelona caliber? Oh, I, I mean, I, he doesn't strike me as a natural Barcelona player. Um, I think he he, you know, he looks uh, a superb player. I, th- I think he you know he will be a uh, a great player. I think he ha- he's been he's played exceptionally well this season. Uh, I thought there were signs of rawness there on Saturday. I think you've got to ask why he wasn't next to Messi in the build for the first goal. I mean, he was caught you know, 10, 15 yards upfield. When, if he'd been on Messi, would Messi have had time to, to turn clip that pass to Jordi Alba? Maybe not. I thought a couple of times his, his positioning went awry. But you've got to remember, he is only 22. He's coming back from a, from, you know, a, a serious injury. Um, and you know, he, he clearly has a lot of gifts. You know, he's, he's a intelligent player, good touch, kind of physically aggressive. I mean, that was the other thing. He could have been sent off, probably should have been sent off as well. Uh, so, you know, there's maybe a temperament issue. But I, th- I think generally, I think you'd look at him and say, yeah, within within three or four years, he'll have established himself as one of you know, the top 10, top 20 players in the world. And it's understandable that big teams would look at him. Whether he's a natural fit for Barcelona, that, that strikes me as being yeah, not a, not a natural fit. But maybe Barcelona are thinking, well... Do they have anybody who could replace Busquets at the back of midfield? Maybe they want somebody who can drive forward as well. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess in a sense, Barcelona never really replaced uh, Sadio Keita, who yeah, I think did perform a valuable, slightly under underappreciated role for them at times. So, yeah, not a natural fit, but you can see why why big clubs are interested. All right, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks. You seem impressed, Ken, by Juve. We've talked mostly about Barcelona, a little bit about Juve there, about what they've managed to build in the last uh, last few years. They did, of course, keep some of their key players when they were relegated, which I guess is the only thing that maybe has the, the loyalty of the likes of Buffon and Del Piero yeah. is exactly is is the by a mile the most important factor because that means young players will still go to the club even though they're in the second division. It means everyone doesn't totally forget about Juventus that they're still uh, they're still a name and the fans don't drift away. Yeah. Um well well I mean it was it was very wise what Buffon did certainly to stick to stick with them. The fact that they were in Serie B he knew was not ultimately going to change the fact that they were by far the biggest club in Italy mm-hmm. and they were only going to be in Serie B for one season and then they were going to get their you were never, together. Yeah, you were never going to suddenly, you, you were taking a couple of years of your career. I guess when you're a goalkeeper and you're as good as Buffon, you're thinking, look, I'm going to have 10 years left here anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to get dropped anytime soon and my career is going to be longer than others. So maybe it's easier for him than some outfield players, particularly if they're towards the end of their career. There was a guy like Pavel Nedved, and I saw Nevid at the at the final, so he's obviously still working for them. They've, you know, Juve, when you do them a favour, they don't forget. Um, I mean, what it shows you, I think, is this is a club with, with a lot of, with, with really good knowledge. I mean, the club that I would compare them to, um, say, for instance, look at Liverpool, a club who've spent a lot more money than Juventus, um, and who I'm pretty confident at the moment still have a, have a bigger turnover than Juventus, which wasn't always the case. They're making more money than than Juventus now, but uh, have you know have have spent? I mean, I don't think Juventus have paid as much as um, as much on any player as Liverpool did on Adam Lallana. Mm. You know, that's just insane. You know, Juventus got instead Juventus got guys in like uh, Pogba and you know Vidal and Tevez and for, for paid 
you know, 12 million, that kind of fee for these, for these guys. I mean, I suppose, number one, it shows you their sort of influence, their status. People are prepared to go and play for them. I mean, Juventus can at least say, play for us and you'll probably win the championship and we'll play in the Champions League, whereas Liverpool can't really say that to a player. But at the same time, the, the lack of knowledge... That, that maybe Liverpool are bringing to the market compared to a club like Juventus. Adam Lallana, 25 million. Yeah, sure, you know, we, we'll write you a check. There's another in 20 million. No. Juventus don't have players this price, but luckily, uh, luckily for them, although they don't have that kind of money to spend, they do know what they're spending it on. All right, hope you enjoyed this podcast. We have another show out today, which will feature a chat in the Women's World Cup that got underway in Canada over the weekend. There are a couple of big games tonight, so we'll chat to the ESPN correspondent over there. And also, Waterford Cork in the hurling. We'll have Maggie Clerken popping in and Owen Kelly on that one there. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to, to this one and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you, Owen. irishtimes.com forward slash second captains for any of those shows or uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever where you usually listen. Take care. It's gone, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.